Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit CARON.org slash lost. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Interstate Batteries offers a wide variety of batteries for your everyday needs. Stop into one of their thousands of retail locations and talk with a battery specialist about batteries for your truck, trail cameras, and even those weird batteries for your rangefinder. Interstate Batteries even offers cell phone repair in certain locations. For more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to the Huntivore Podcast, powered by Sportsman's Empire, where we celebrate the hunting and fishing lifestyle through the utilization and consumption of our wild game. No egos. Fork in hand, beer in the other. No status. A piece of red meat on a hot grill and turn it into a burnt offering. Just catch it, cut it, cook it. This is episode 129, From Field to Plate, with Jeremy Doty. On this episode of Huntivore, Nick sits down with Jeremiah Doty the man behind from field to plate. Jeremiah and Nick have very similar views on wild game and life, even though they are on opposite sides of the country. Jeremiah shares stories from the field and his passions around food. This is an absolute listen of an episode as we prepare for our upcoming seasons. Get ready to be fired up on this episode of Huntivore. Well, hey folks, beautiful afternoon here in Michigan. I tell you what, it is, we're starting to get the heat. It's starting to feel a little bit like California. We we got dry heat. We're in the 90s now. It hasn't rained in well over, I don't want to say quite a month, but we're at like three weeks or so. We had a little spit of rain. Maybe it's because I was destined to talk to a Californian today. I am on the horn here with Jeremiah Doty out of Southern California. Jeremiah, thanks for uh, jumping on. How are things in your neck of the woods? 
Good, but I like how you say California weather. So we've been we haven't had sun since like March. It's been like May gloom, June gloom, March gloom, April gloom. Uh, today is the first day we actually have sun, but it's still sitting around like sixty nine degrees. So I am ready for summer to come. I am ready for heat. Yeah, we needed something has happened. The, everything, I think it, was, it all stems from 2020. More craziness has happened, and Michigan has become California, and California is now eating the Michigan weather. I want my below 70s back. Like, I, I had enough of this heat. I'm ready to move back to uh, some cooler temperatures. Yeah, and I'm I'm ready for heat. Like, I'm still wearing sandals in the 60-degree weather, but throwing on a sweatshirt, you know, like. I mean, I know you guys, 60 degree weather for you when in, in the middle of, you know, after winter, you're like, okay, but for us, that's like, that's like freezing cold when it's 50 and 60 degrees outside, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. We, we, uh, we feel for you. We wish to have it back. Cause yeah, now we get here and we're like, we don't, we don't know what to do. I have all these sweatshirts and I can't wear them. I have like four t-shirts. So I just got to keep cycling through. But uh, yeah, you got you got cold weather out there. I thought great spot for us to touch off a little bit, Jeremiah. Is how were your seasons this past year? I know in in California things work a little different. You you do like there's less over the counter opportunities, and you have end up having to play the tag game. But there's still a lot of opportunities to get over the counter. You just have to be strategic on where you go. Am I right? Yeah, so the way our state works is we've it, it's broken up into a lot of the, like the western states we're broken up into different zones, different hunt areas, zones, right? Some states will call it areas, some ours calls it zones. So we'll have like A zone, B zone, whatever, right? So we have an AO which is an archery only and that's pretty much over the counter. You can go in and get it and you can hunt anywhere that's in with that AO zone. Then you have like an A tag which A tag covers almost all of the state. Um which you can put in for, and that's just going to public land. You can go shoot your one deer on that AO. Uh, then there's a B or the A zone. Then, then there's a B zone, which kind of goes up towards the northern one. Um, but then there's individual zones within that that is a draw system. So you'll have, like, the D zones, the the other A zones. You'll have X zones, which those are your prime. Like, you put in and put in and put in and try to get an X zone because that's where your big, giant mule deer are up in the, up in the mountains up near Tahoe, Mammoth. You're going to get... Big, big, big mule deer coming in. Uh, but me, I draw in the south uh, down in the desert, and I'm shooting the desert mule deer coming in off of Mexico. So we've still got big mule deer coming in out of Mexico, and that's primarily what I go for. I know how to hunt the deserts. I'm a flatlander. You know, I live at 30 you know, feet above sea level. <laughs> and so going up to that 10,000 foot to go track mule deer is fun, but I just can't breathe. So... I'd rather go hike around the deserts and and really try to outsmart these deer rather than you know sitting behind a tree. So you've you've spoken a lot about antelope, and I know you've got a, a food allergy, and mm-hmm. beef is no longer good for you. Was there some was whitetail also becoming a problem for you at that one point? But I knew that antelope was a a thing that you could safely safely eat. It's funny you say that. I just finished this guy, and I'm just about ready to put him up. So oh, beautiful. Um, yeah, it's he literally was holding a me. skull mount there of a, of a pronghorn. Uh, no, all, all wild game is, is on the table for me. Uh, antelope was just the first of the wild game that I ever went in, like large game I ever hunted, uh, been a bird hunter my whole life. And so antelope was that first 
introductory, you know, animal to me. A lot of guys like you in Michigan and stuff, right? Like you're used to going out and chasing those whitetails as soon as the air starts to get cold and school starts to start again and you're all getting off the day to go open or, you know, deer. For us, you know, deer season opens here July 14th in Southern California for archery. So you can go chase deer. The only problem is 110 degrees outside. And you try to tell me one deer. <laughs> yeah. You try to tell me one deer that's out eating in the middle of the day. No, they're only, you know, they're walking in the middle of the night when it's 80 degrees. And so, um, it was never really that option, but when the beef allergy came into play, um, that's where the antelope did because Wyoming, it's just so cheap at the time. I think it was like 36 bucks for, an, for uh, a tag and license in Wyoming. It's, you, you can't beat that. You can go get four, you know, back in the day, you used to be able to get four doe tags. And so you can go do four doe tags for the price of still cheaper than trying to get a buck. And so that's really where that passion for pronghorn started was 10 years ago, um, chasing, you know, pulling up to the plains of Wyoming and just seeing herds and herds and say, how do I close a three mile gap on an animal that can see three and a half miles? And that's, you know, so antelope to me, that is just was the beginning of it. And that's why it's one of my absolute favorites because it's just like you're, you know, it's your first, right? It's your first big, your first big game, your first struggle, your first taste of big wild game meat. That's not, you know, that's cooked properly. And so, yeah, that's, that's the fun for me of antelope. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like you said, the whitetail is king in a lot of people's books here, uh, out east and you know especially here in Michigan it's plentiful it's you know it's right out your back door but it's what it's what we cut our teeth on it's what we grew up on and we know them inside and out and so yeah it's as much fun as it is to go and chase other species and I'm I'm finally getting that chance to be able to branch out and you know go different places chase after different critters I I still think that whitetail will continue and always be my number one on my list you know you know, two, three, and four, it's going to kind of cycle through as far as how my mood is swinging. But for the most part, you're right. Like your first is one that's going to stick at the top of that list. Yeah. But also like there's something magical about hunting an animal that you understand its psyche, right? Like, like I know how antelope are going to work now. Like I, I, I know how their brains work. I know where they're going to, you know, Unlike whitetail, mule, you know, mule deer, elk, cattle, for that fact, um, when the sun starts to set, antelope lay down, and they're there all night long. Just like a lot of the other big sheep that you're going to find, the goats you're going to find, they don't want to walk in the middle of the night, right? Their biggest asset is their eyes. You know, they've got huge eye sockets, and they've got this almost 360-degree view where they can they can look on their eyes. And so taking away their natural, you know, defense mechanism they usually huddle down hurt you know so you're you're almost in a sense hunting antelope like you're hunting turkey where you're 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 putting them to roost and then you're coming back in the morning to try to figure out did they fly off the roost early or are they still going to be right in that one spot and so you know we've taken out i've taken out i can't tell you how many brand new hunters to to antelope we took out this one dude from my church he was in his late 80s all his you know had cancer his wife passed away and he really wanted to hunt antelope. And so we got him tagged th- through the draw. And I remember we took him out the night before. We put down a whole herd. There was like 40, 50 antelope. And that morning, we crawled in at like 3 o'clock in the morning. And we sat up on this little rise about 150 yards from them. And we just sat down. You know, we didn't lay down. We were right where we needed to be. We got up, you know, a tripod, 
tightened his gun in right where the herd was. We're like, okay, you know, as soon as they stand up in the morning, just pick one. You know, like you have a doe tag. There's 40 does out there. Just pick any doe you want, pull the trigger. And so in that sense, it was a lot, you know, it's, it's sort of like sitting in a tree stand or sort of like sitting in a blind where you know the pattern of the animals, but you knew where they were going to be. You know, it's, you know exactly where they were going to wake up. So that was kind of fun. That's really cool. That's really cool. I like how you compare that even to turkey hunting where you put them to rest and, and the fact that, yeah, they're not going anywhere and you guys can come back and get the stock on them early uh, before they've gotten their full alert characteristics. Are you still playing? You're still playing a lot of wind out there because at that point there's, I mean, there are hollows and there are spots that your, your scent can travel down, but you're really, as much as their eyes are one of the biggest protectors, their nose is still as strong as a lot of their senses. I have not found that to be as, as truthful as a lot of people will claim to be. Really? Um, their eyes are their biggest uh, asset. Their nose, I mean, we, we've made stock where the wind is at our back howling towards them, and as long as we stay out of sight, they could care less. Um, it's not like a whitetail or a muley where they'll put their heads up and they'll start looking, they'll start sniffing. They'll, they, I've, I, you don't see them lift their nose to sniff. You see them. Usually, you'll have, you'll, you'll, you'll have a male or a dominant female who is always going to like every five seconds their heads up. Um, and if they look your way, they will not break that look to smell to turn. To, they are looking where they saw that movement. And so kind of like a military sniper, if you see that they're looking at where you were, you're able to back out, go over and come up, and they're still looking at that location uh, where you were. But I have, and I tell people when we take them all the time, like, don't worry about the scent. Don't worry about scent blockers. Don't worry about your biggest thing is not being seen. Um, this last season was rough. It was hard. It was just me and my dad out there, and we were chasing chasing bucks. And we just – the the way the rain was working, the way it was just, it was a rough opening morning. And we're actually driving out of, out of the property uh, that we have permission to hunt, which backs up to 90,000 acres of BLM land. It's this little sliver of landlock that goes in. We've known the guy for 15 years. So it's, hey, yeah, come on. You can have access to my property, but then use the 90,000 acres 90, of BLM. 000. Those are numbers that still I just can't even fathom until you're and out I've there never, to see it. And I've hunted that property for 10 years, and I don't think I've hit every canyon. Um, and so as we're driving out, just out of the tall grass, the grass is probably waist high because uh, they've had such a wet winter there in Wyoming. And all we see is the tips of this guy's horns, the one that I was showing you earlier, pronghorn. We just see the little tips of the curves up here. And I'm like, stop, 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 stop. My, my dad's driving because I'm hunting. And I go, stop. And I glass, and I just see the tips. And I go, all right, we got to figure out how to get to this guy, right? But it's a flat plane. Like, there's no stock. There's no, there's no way to come in behind him. There's no way to come in front of him. There's no way to – like, he's out uh, just as far as you can see, flat grassland. And so I'm looking on Onyx. I'm going crazy. I'm like, okay, we're, there's got to be a draw here. There's got to be – and there's nothing, right? So I tell my dad, okay, I'm going to get out on the other side. You just keep driving. He'll just, you know, if he, you, you can kind of see his head looking at the, where the, where the truck was, I get out of the truck and my dad kind of goes over and out of sight. And, and then I belly crawl, um, in that grass, in the, in the rain, in the mud, wind is howling at my back. Like I said, I'm following the, the curvature of the, of the grass 
and I'm going and I would kind of just peek up a little bit enough to see his horns and I'd, I'd range him like, no, no, it's not close enough, you know, cause I had to get where I could lay down and see the tip of his horns so that when he stood up, I knew that his body is going to be above the grass and I could pull the trigger. And so when, when I got into range where I could see the tip of his horns without lifting my head up, where I could just be on my bipod with my head down on my, on my rifle, I was 43 yards from this antelope. And I had, where my dad had dropped me off was 500 yards before that. When I first glassed him, he was 540 yards, 550 yards. And so I belly crawled through this grass for, you know, 500 yards. And then I just laid there. And it was about an hour, 45 minutes to an hour of me just laying there on my rifle. I'm like, I, if I move, he's, he, you know, he sees me, he's gone. So it's just laying here. And on the highway, about a mile away, we hear like, you know, like a, like a truck going by. And that was just enough to make him stand up. And oh as soon goodness. as he stood up, the lower, the part of his belly was right at the grass level. And I remember I was, I had knew his head was, I kind of went to where I thought his, his heart would be. And he stood up and as soon as he stood up, he just laid right back down. Um, and my dad called and goes, I heard the shot. I'll be right there. And it was one of those moments where people, you know, if I was with anybody else, if it was any, if I was with a new hunter, I don't think we would have killed that buck just because of the patience and the perseverance and the, I wasn't worried about at all about my scent with that guy. It was all about vision. It's all about what they see, um, which is a big difference from a whitetail, which you've been sitting in the woods and also you hear, you know, you're stomping, grunting and blowing. You're like, really? Like, I thought I was playing this one. Great. And also you hear, you know, you're like freaking buck. And yep. so, yeah, I don't, I don't play the wind game when it comes to antelope. It's all, it's, it's all, all vision. Yeah. And, and all the, all the big hunters that I hunt with out there too, they'll, they'll tell you the same thing. It's all about staying down low enough where you're not going to be compromised by their incredible eyesight. What kind of, you don't have to use a real heavy rifle for that being just that they are such a, a sleek animal, uh, a lighter framed animal. What, what rifle are you using? Uh, I have killed them with everything from a 6.5 to a 270 uh, to a 30-06, just kind of depending on the, the distance. Because you're shooting at such a flat, long range, I really like that 6.5. I know a lot of guys will give it crap. Oh, it's the, the round's phenomenal. And that new 6.5 PCR or PRC round is uh, stupid. But, I mean, I took I took a buck at... 615 yards um, with a 6.5 and I meant the thing took three steps and you know buckled down so that round itself especially and I'm shooting like the Hornaday you know uh, ELDX so it's got that it's got that e-tip on the front so as soon as it goes through the animal it really has that good mushroom just plunk Um, but yeah you can shoot them and I've shot them I've shot more 30-06 than anything else just because you're out there hunting mule deer, whitetail, and antelope. So you want to be able to, whatever you come across, you want to be able to, you know. And those those whitetail up in Wyoming are like your guys' whitetail, which are like horses. Not like yes. those little Texas, you know, puppies. <laughs> so. Little coos deer, yeah. Little, <laughs> you said little toys. Yeah, my, uh, yeah, with the scent, I have, I had a nanny doe. Um, I actually had a chance to take her this year, which worked out wonderful it was one of those like i was i was glad to shoot her um i mean she she was hefty she made every other deer that i got this year look small 
Um, I need to put a scale. I didn't, I didn't have a scale, uh, in my shop yet, but just ranging how much she is, she had to have been 175 reaching 200 pounds, just a massive deer. Her snout had this, uh, I think she got either got in a fight or had some sort of injury, but she had this hump on the top of her nose. But so what, just but that's sad. actually what that's oh, actually okay. called is a Ro- it that's actually called a Roman nose. Uh, you'll find that on whitetail uh, the older they get. So you'll you'll be able to really like when they start to get super super old, their nose gets that big kind of roundedness to it, and that's just a bunch of cartilage. It's from fighting. That's from age. It's sort of like you. You see that old drunk dude at the at the bar, right? He's got that big old giant bulbous of a nose, right? The same thing's going to happen to to whitetail um, in that. So you can actually, you know, we'll be sitting there looking at looking at deer in Texas or you know Alabama, Michigan, you, you name it, and you know a lot of guys we're, we're we're looking at the belly, we're looking at the neck, we're looking at the way the ears break down, right? But when they turn that head, you can see that Roman nose on it. Um, and it's and you'd be surprised if you were to look at the teeth on any deer that has that Roman nose, it's they're almost gone, completely gone, just so, worn down. Oh yeah. Well, that's that's what she had. She had that Roman nose. She had that hump right there, just yeah, just above where her actual nose is, in that snout. And she just knew as much as I knew her. She knew me. There would be so many times where I'm sitting, and it would be just like you said with the scent. Uh, 80 yards away and I'd hear a, I'd hear blowing and I knew exactly who was blowing. She just she just knew my spots and you know I I have taken deer around her but she has never given me that opportunity. I've had them walk down like as if they're coming right to my spot. I am just about ready to go and draw the bow just to have her not feel right, make a make a few calls to her her uh, her girls and turn them right around and that was that was my night and it was just like gosh she's just been a thorn in my side and I took her with a firearm this year uh, actually she was one of the two like well she's one of the first deer that I've taken with a firearm everything else has been with with bow but to have her uh, run I think she got spooked by either a piece of machinery at the farmer. Or at the, at the farm, or a neighboring hunter that ended up putting a shot on, but they ran in and they were looking everywhere else but at me, and so I was able to take her. Uh, we're a shotgun zone; we're in the limited fire zone. We have too many people around us. So, as much as I would love to use a six-five and be able to have that reach out and touch something power, uh, I've, I've just been with the tried and true shotgun, the twelve gauge. But anyway, put her right down, and I. I tell you what, you know, you get something with that big a caliber, that big a hole, it's it's going to put that animal down. So that's what I was curious on. Even with something that's as frail as a as a pronghorn, you're still trying to use rounds that can reach out there. So you said, yeah, thirty out six. That's an older round that you know doesn't have the uh, sexy appeal. It's got more of the heritage and tradition behind it, but it's still an an effective tool, especially when you've got multiple species around you. Oh, I have a, my very first rifle ever that I bought myself was a, back in the day, what, 15 years ago, was a, a Thompson Center, back when they were first coming out, like, you know, it's a Smith & Wesson company, but everyone's like, Thompson Center, 30-06, um, and I didn't know, I was like, oh, 30-06, I know that's what my grandpa used, you know, and 
I remember I got it and that gun, I hunt a lot in the West. And so a lot of the friends and stuff have deemed that the wicked witch of the West because it has taken down since I started big game hunting 10 years ago. Um, it just put down its 600 animal, um, total that's, that's hog deer, antelope, you know, elk, you name it. I'm at odd ad axis and, or, you know, big old, big old sheep. It's, it's tagging them. Um, and it's just consistent. And it's one of those deals. Like I tell everyone, when you know your weapon and your weapon knows you, it's like, you know, I grew up bird hunting. And so you put a shotgun in my shoulder and I don't even think about it. It's just muscle memory of me shooting bird, shooting dove, quail, pheasant, chuck, or waterfowl, you name it. And it's just, it's muscle memory. Like I don't look at the sights. I don't, it's just my body and my, you know, I know where it sits on my cheek. I know where it sits in my shoulder. I know where, you know, where my, where the eye relief is on it. You know, I get sent shotguns all the time from companies. And it's funny. I always turn back to the one that I got when I was like 18. Cause it's just, it's, it's comfortable. It's not sexy. It's not sleek, but it's, you know, it's a powerhouse. Right. And with that 30 out six is the same deal. I've got, you know, I've got a, I can't tell you how many rifles sitting in a safe. And it's always like, mm, I think I'm going to take out the wicked witch. And everyone's like, dude, but you've got, you know, I'm like, yeah, that, that gun works nice. You know, it's nice. But this guy, I, I put it on my shoulder and it's no, I don't have to adjust my turrets. I don't, it's like, if it's within 400 yards, it's dead. Like there's no ifs, ands, buts. There's no, and, and we were hunting in Texas this year and I t- we took out some uh, football players right after they got done with their, with their, with their NFL season. And they all wanted to learn how to deer hunt. And so we went out to the ranch and we were, we were hunting out in Texas and I remember the, the, one of the guys was like, I've never shot an, a, anything before. And I go, just here, point and shoot. Okay. I said, don't think about it. Don't, you're, you got my body build. Put your head down, point, shoot. And he ended up shooting like, I think seven or eight deer in a matter of like two days. Wow. And everyone's, I mean, there's deer running. He's like, I got this. And I was like, <laughs> dude, he's like, well, you said point and shoot. And I'm like, I told you point and shoot. Like, I'm not. And I think that's where it comes down to someone like you with your bow, right? You know your bow so well that you can almost do it blindfolded, you know, by feel, by, by, by you know, you know where it's hitting your lip. You know where your anchor points are. Same thing applies to a rifle or a shotgun. And that's why I, I, I laugh when these guys get so caught up in like, oh, bows are better, rifles are better, shock. A weapon's a weapon. And once you've mastered that weapon, it's fun. And it's, it's going to get groceries and it's going to be, you know, it's going to be a part of it. I could care less. I mean, I, ha- I have killed animals every legal way. I think there's a legal way to kill an animal from pellet rifles to spears to stabbing hogs. Like I've done it all. And all of them to me have a place, you know? Yes. Yes. The adage of, and I, I always reference this cause you know, my, my collection of firearms is quite narrow, but at the same time, like I always live on that adage that beware the man with one gun. That yeah. just like you so eloquently put together saying that I know this rifle as soon as I put it in or the shotgun, I, I put it on my shoulder and I'm not thinking about where is it placed. I'm not it, it, you're not thinking it just is point and shoot. Just like you said, it's it's set up just where you need it to be. And I can tell if I have not drawn the bow in a couple weeks, it's one of those things like my very first shot is already going to be one that I shoot let down i don't know why i release it but it's like you know what you the the relationship you know it, all of a sudden there needs to be a warming period i've I've left it down for a couple weeks let's pick it back up let's get back into this let's get into the flow of things and you then you remember 
exactly what uh, what you need to do. And then after that, man, with consistent practice, especially leading up to those seasons, it is it's it's game on. That you once you get in there, it's I'm not thinking about my shot process. It's more or less I'm thinking about my setup. But as soon as yeah. the deer comes into that circle of my ethical range, you know, all emotions are off. We're not we're not using the front side of my brain. We're using the back side, the lizard brain at that point. Yeah. Well, that's like funny too, because, you know, I take out a lot of new hunters, dove hunting and quail hunting, and you'll also have a lot of veterans that come out to the fields. Like, like last year, I think we had like 33 guys in the field that I had talked to a farmer, got this, got this field. It was an old wheat field. He just plowed over. And so the dove were like, like Argentina. Right. And I have all these buddies that are coming in and, their shotguns hadn't been taken out since the last dove season. And they're sitting there and they're missing. They're like, I don't get what I'm missing. I go, because you haven't touched your weapon for an entire year. I don't think you cleaned your weapon. Like there's still the blood on the side from the dove that hit it well, you know, last year. And we were talking to some of these new guys. I go, listen, I try to get, you know, there, there's so many things like there's a, there's a company called Mantis X, not sponsored, but you can go look them up if you want to. They make, um, attachments for shotguns, handguns, bow and arrows, um, that you use your phone. It's not like the, what's that one you pull back on the bow and see like, Oh, the fake animals you shoot. Um, Oh yeah. You know what I'm talking about? It's got a rubber band for the, yeah, yeah. It's not like that. Like you're actually using your weapon, your firearm, uh, your handgun. And it's like a laser mint. Like when I do classes, you can lay down on someone's gun, attach it to them and it'll actually pick up their movement left, right. How they're, you know, if they're jerking their trigger pull and I'll put that on my shotgun and just do it in my garage, you know, just to get the main, you know, like, Hey, as soon as it hits this point, pull the trigger just to see where my face is going, you know, and my, and my daughters who are hunters too, it's like, Hey, we're going to go out to, you know, a, a month before dove season's going to start. I'm going to go out there and start slinging clays for them. Even though it's a hundred degrees, we'll go out there and shoot a box of clays. And it's just to get their muscle memory. So they go out there and they're out shooting the boys at 13 years old. You know, and the, all, all these grown men are like, why are your girls shooting so well? Because they shot, you know, they practice. <laughs> and and I, I laugh at the bow hunters to do the same thing. Like deer season's coming. So a week before deer season opens, you see them all at the range. Right. They're like, oh, I got to practice. Deer season opens next week. I'm like, you should have been practicing in July for opener in October, bud. Yeah. Um, practice begins at the end of season. You shouldn't put it away. And I know, you know, reality sets in. Life is always there. But there are ample opportunities for leagues in the winter. And I mean, I use that as an excuse more socially, I should say, but at the same time, I have found just my level of confidence to where I can be nitty gritty on paper uh, through January and February. Then when we get back outside, like now I can, you know, I've I've still had that conditioning, but now my nitty and grittiness, you know, I'm not worried about breaking a line. I'm not worried about, uh, trying to necessarily get it inside the the X. At this point now, I just want my broadheads to fly super, super straight. And so now it becomes an equipment tinkering issue, but the practice has already been in there. So, yeah, tons of balance everywhere else when it comes to that. It's funny. I was talking to a, a big bow hunter during turkey season up in Georgia, and he was laughing because there were all these – we were watching all these videos of these guys out there, you know, oh, 50, 50 arrows in practice. He goes – uh your first arrow is the only arrow that ever counts. <laughs> he goes, why are you out there shooting 50 arrows? Your first arrow, you're not, you, you are not going to get a second chance at a deer with an arrow. 
99.99% of the time. He goes, so a true hunter should be able to pick up their bow, sit for 30 minutes, don't move, draw back, and hit their mark. And then get up, go do things, come back an hour later, sit down, hit your mark. He goes, sitting at an archery block and shooting 50 arrows at it, it's pointless because you're building a muscle memory that doesn't need to be there. Your muscle memory should be the first arrow, and that's it. Because that's the arrow that counts when you're a bow hunter. It's sort of like a rifle hunter. Like we, when I'm teaching people how to shoot rifle, it's like the mechanics of how to reload and cock a second one is not as important as breathing for your first shot. It just isn't. Your first shot is your first shot, and that goes with anything. You know, shotguns and birds are a little different. Sometimes you're like, ah, oh, first shot, I miss with a dove. I'm a little behind. Lead a little more. Boom, pull the trigger. But for, for archery, I think it's it's funny. I never, ever really thought about it like that until he started talking about it. I go, huh. So now I, I literally go to the archery range, pull out all my stuff. I'll sit there. I'll be talking to people, fling one arrow, start packing everything up. And people are like, what? I go, it's the only one that counts. If it hit where it's supposed to go, that's a dead deer. And it's all these dudes laugh at me, but I'm like, if I do that every day for two weeks and I can guarantee that that first shot is money, in my mind... I know that when that deer walks in, my first shot is money. There's so many times as, as archers where we're like, oh, I dialed it in. My fifth shot was great. Well, your fifth shot, that's... Yeah, there's nothing the there the to season. even shoot at five yeah. shots. That's the end of the season. And so being confident and, and comfortable at going out, pulling out your bow, throwing one arrow down, and then being able to go out and get your deer, I think is is where we need to start looking at it, where we need to start really, you know, having those different competitions. Yeah, you know, go walk up a mountain and shoot a, a 3D target. It's great. It gets your heart rate up. But 90% of bow hunters are sitting in tree stands. So literally go sit in a lawn chair in front of a 3D target for 45 minutes to an hour, slowly grab your bow, pull the trigger. You know, like that's real-world scenario situations. That's like what well, if you look at like, you know, frogmen, seals, all that, you know, they're not going to go in there and go, okay, we need repetition. It's, hey, we're going to go breach this house. If we don't breach this house correctly, then we're all dead, you know? Then you're all going to go drown and have to, we're going to bring it back to life. So I think it's that mechanics we need to look at. And it's, I don't know, I think it makes you a better hunter overall. When in the field, accuracy and precision count. That's why we switch our slug guns to rifle barrels tune our arrows and use a fish finder on the water. But why should our drive for control end there? The Tappacue line of meat probes gives an instantaneous look at the temperatures of our prized meals, both internal and the cooking chamber. Tappacue uses sturdy hardware made and assembled here in the U.S., along with their user-friendly, sophisticated software that connects to your smart device. Whether it's a traditional corded probe or the new cordless air probes that give you a wealth of freedom where wires would just get in the way. Adding a Tappacue meat probe can significantly help in getting to that medium rare on venison or waterfowl, ensuring your upland bird stays moist, or even charting your long cooks on a smoker. Visit Tappacue.com or find the link in the show notes. And use the code HUNT10, all uppercase, at checkout to save 10%. Adding a probe to your kit can make you one tap away from your cue. 
Dry-aged steaks used to be a steakhouse-only indulgence. An old-world charcuterie was pricey due to being imported or created at a small batch-specific scale. Thanks to Umai Dry, their synthetic dry-aging bags and casings allow you to create these meat-crafting treats in your own kitchen. Working in tandem with your fridge, the Umai Dry bag material allows moisture and air to pass through, making it possible to dry-age large cuts of steaks or roasts. Paired with their curing and seasoning kits, along with safe and easy-to-follow instructions, salamis and dry sausage are well within your grasp. Use the link in the show notes and sign up for the newsletter to receive 10% off your order. Umai Dry, helping us elevate our wild game from the home kitchen. Jeremiah Doty, everybody, spitting truth right here. It's the first arrow. It's the first shot that counts when it comes to hunters because that second one is just going to be a hope and a prayer at that point. Critters moving. You have, you know, your heart rate's going. It's not going to be the greatest shot in the world. The greatest shot needs to be the first arrow. Jeremiah, that was awesome. Yeah, you know what? I can't take all credit for it, Jason. (laughs) He's the one that kind of spit that truth when we were turkey hunting. And it, like I said, it made made complete sense because I was like, oh, crap, I never really thought about the first arrow, I remember going there going, I got to go get more arrows. I shot 25. I, I want to have 50 so I don't have to go walk to the, you know, the the box every single time. So, um, which is, is fun, you know. And, and for me this year, I've got I've got a deer in my sights that I shot last season, the end of last season in my zone. Um, it's an archery-only area down by the river, and the deer come out, like, right at sunset. Like, you literally have 10 minutes to make a shot legally. Oh, and then they nice. come and then they walk back in from the, the big alfalfa fields with like, you have five minutes to shoot legally. And I got in on this target buck that I've been eyeing for a couple of years, big old four by five mule deer. And he, he, everyone calls him the ghost. Cause he's just an old, old buck. And this year he came out, there was about 45 doe that were coming out into the field. And I was sitting in this like, just this little bush that wasn't as big as my head, sitting right up against it, kind of brushed myself in. We're in the desert, so it's not like big forest behind us we can hide behind. It's like you don't move because – and all those doe came out, and they're kind of feeding real slow. And I'm like, man, he's not going to come. And all of a sudden, I just see this big rack, you know, kind of come out through this these mesquite bushes. And I was like, oh, my gosh. Right? And as you know, as bow hunters, we've already – we. We've already ranged everything within our, our kill zone, right? So if, what he else you got tree, <laughs> if he hits that tree, it's 45 yards. If he hits that bush, it's 26 yards. If he hits, right? So I'm watching him walk, and he, and he hits the tree, and I'm like, oh, okay, 45 yards, right? But all these doe eyes are looking at me, you know, because I'm the only bush in this hole. I'm like, this is not going to, you know, and then he walks. He's walking, and then he's still walking. He walks to that neck. I'm like, oh, okay, he's at 35 yards, you know, I'm like, okay, adjust my, you know, adjust my pin real quietly down to my and then he stops and he kind of like looks up towards the field and there's like a truck driving way out in the field. I'm like, okay, this is my shot. You know, pull back in my lap, pull up, take aim, let the arrow fly. I'm at, he bucks. And I'm like, oh, like all the adrenaline in the world. But he turns and runs back into this like planted tree line that the, the fish and game planted. It's like you stick your hand in there and, you, and it disappears along with the 45 doe. So there's like, I'm not going to, try to find a broken branch or and i go over my arrows covered in blood and i'm like perfect so i call my dad call my other hunting buddy i'm like hey i'm gonna give this about a half an hour and then 
by this time it's pitch black. Mosquitoes are out. And I'm like, all right, we're going we're, we're gonna to go find this buck. And so we follow the blood right to the tree line. We get in this tree line, and we can't. I mean, it's, we're breaking branches. And I go, let's, it's 39 degrees. Let's back out. We'll come in first thing in the morning, and we'll find this deer, right? Good. I call my buddy who's a fish and wildlife uh, officer out in that area. He's like, dude, I'm not working tomorrow. I'll grab a couple guys. We'll all come out. We'll all come do like a grid pattern search. We'll find this buck, right? Because he was stoked because he's seen this deer on trail cameras and everyone else's pictures. Could not find that deer. Could I mean, we we searched all day. I mean, with eight, nine guys, grid pattern from where I shot him to the river. So we're like, okay, he jumped in the river, tried to swim away, drown, floated down river. I was, that's the first animal I've ever lost. And I, you know, because I shoot rifle primarily. So yeah. usually when the 30 out six hits him in the side, they don't, they don't run, run off very far. <laughs> um, and it just was killing me. And then I, I went from there to go teach one of my deer classes and the whole deer class, man, I'm just like, gosh, beside myself, like just, this is, and so there was like two weeks left in season and I was like, I'm going to try to go back out. And, but I was like, I'm signing my tag. Cause for me, if I find blood, it's dead animal. Like that, yep. that's my tag. And so I signed my tag, let fish and game sign it. He's trying to convince me not to, he's like, no, you know, we didn't find it. And I'm like, I know where I shot him and I know it. Well, he sends me a video of a bow hunter on the very last day of season. And that buck comes walking out. And right where I'd shot him is, a you know, the mark. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. There's no way with the amount of blood, it, you know, right behind the shoulder. Well, this bow hunter puts it in, I mean, he's videoing it, puts it in the same exact hole I put it. Right? Like, you watch his Luminox go right through it. And I'm like, oh, whatever, he's got my buck. Well, then the next text, the next day, was like, we can't find him. We had blood trail going to the trees. We can't find oh, this buck. Oh, my gosh. The ghost lives. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. He's taking two arrows, like money shots. Right. Any, any bow hunter would be like, that's a dead deer, right? Yeah. And so they don't find him. Well, a month, a month ago, a buddy of mine who lives in that area sent me a picture of that buck in velvet. Oh. with a scar on his side, the size of, you know, the, the size of my pinky. And he's got on the opposite side, it's got some funky growth because he got shot twice. Right. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, you, all right. So I put in for a tag for that area and my dad and me are like, okay, for the month before we're going to go like take weekends. We're going to go scout. We're going to, I, I want to know at you know opening day, October 1st, or actually I think it's whatever that first Saturday in October is. I want to know where he's walking out. I want to be sitting there and I want to, I'm going to, I'm going to get like the biggest rage I can find. You know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go for a small broad. I'm going to, I'm going to, Oh, is that a 17 inch rage broadhead? Yeah. I'm going to take that one. Turkey uh, guillotine on this thing. <laughs> Dude, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm going to get a 400 grain arrow. You know, I'm going to dial up to 70 pounds. It's like this sucker is going to, you know, I've, I've talked to Newcomb blinds. I'm going to put a Newcomb blind out. Like the sucker is going to get freaking. And it's one of those deals where my buddy was laughing. He goes, Dude, you are, I go, cause here's the deal. At this point, it's become like you and that doe, right? This is personal. This is, we know each other. I have tried hunting him many times. He finally made a mistake. Well, he made a mistake twice, um, but he made a mistake for me. And my shot hit, I mean, like I said, it was by far, it was one of those shots that you're like, and even even the guy that shot it goes, how'd that deer not die? Uh, so I don't know, just nick the bottom of it, that one lung or whatever, but yeah, he's uh Coming that first Saturday in October, 
That is where I'm going to be is sitting, sweating my butt off with a bow in my hand, waiting for him to make a mistake. And I'm going to, and I told my dad, I said, I'm hunting him until I come home. So my trailer is at the river. If it takes me two weeks, it takes me two weeks, but I'm not coming home till, till I'm guaranteed that he is not there or until I have his backstrap Frenched out on my Traeger at my barbecue with my feet up with all my buddies who helped me look for him eating dinner. Like that's, those are the two options. It's so funny how and I, I was never a big I'm not a big reader, especially especially after taking my getting my master's degree. Uh, I never wanted to touch a book again. <laughs> never wanted to read. I, I think I'm finally kind of warming up to the idea of getting back into either stories or, you know, uh, fiction or, or something. But I do like resonate a little bit with uh the story of Moby Dick, and I forget the mm. name of the captain. Um, Ahab. Ahab. But, like, you, between Ahab and Moby Dick and the drama and how that man pushed the boat and pushed the crew to the point of where they're like, listen, Captain, you are crazy. And he didn't care. It was all sights on finding that whale. How easily you can interchange these characters, where it was me and that nanny doe, or it's you and the ghost. It, you know, it's just it's the same story, but man, we're switching in different characters at this point. It's an absolute novel that you're writing at this point. Oh, and I and I can't like for me, for me, it, it, it isn't about the head on the wall. I know I have a ton of skulls on the wall, but for me, it's all the stories around the meal, right? And at this point, it's it's it goes back to that old adage of like, Hey, it's the story surrounding that meal is going to be one of the most epic stories. And I'm going to create one of the most epic meals I can to honor that story. And, and if it, if it's to the point where I never shoot that buck, that's even going to be a better story and it's going to be a greater story. And it's going to, but I don't want to go out there and, and be lazy and then have someone else take that pursuit. Does that make sense? And I think that's where a lot of people get so caught up in today's society. It's like, oh, well, uh, for me, it's, it's, you know, I'm working on two cookbooks right now, and I'm exhausted because I'm trying to do it all myself. And everyone's like, oh, just take a break. I'm like, yeah, but if I take a break, someone else is going to come in behind me, and they're going to they're gonna take what I want to do, and they're going to do, you know, it's like, especially with, like, my From Field to Plate classes and everything else, there's so many companies and groups that are coming out doing the same thing that I started seven, eight years ago. And I can either, you know, I had a, I had a talk with uh, an Outdoor Life magazine article lady the other day. And I told her flat out because she was like, oh, do you, do you feel jealous or anything when you see all these other wild game type chefs come out? These, these? And I'm like, no. For me, it's not, it's not a competition. In the outdoor industry, it is a huge competition with everybody. In the cooking world, it's even a bigger competition. You look at some of these chefs. And every TV show out there right now is a competition, right? It is a, it is a cooking competition. It is, I am better than you. I cook better than you. I make better plates than you. And my biggest thing in this whole industry was to not be that person, right? Is, and, and there's a lot of people that you've had on your podcast that I'm really good friends with. And we all kind of have the same thing. Like, hey, we're here to scratch each other's back. And we're here to encourage each other. We're here to, to, to help. And in my mind, the more people that are doing it and creating food that people can get out there, the more excited people are to go out and hunt, right? The more, the more passion driven we're going to be out to get out there and do stuff. And so when I look at the pursuit of an animal, I look at the food at, I look at it from a food perspective. 
I look at it from how can I take this animal and glorify it so much so that people are like, I want to go shoot a deer now. That, that burger looked so good that I want to go shoot a deer to eat a burger and taking away this whole head on a wall thing. And so for me shooting that buck, his head is just part of the story, right? Part Mm -hmm. of the, Hey, this is what happened. And to be able to tell that story as people are sitting around a campfire eating jerky sticks. And let me tell you the story about this jerky stick. Cause this odd dad behind me, I can tell you the story about that odd dad, how we were in Texas for my, my 30th birthday. And a bunch of Texans told me that odd dad was the worst meat they've ever eaten. And no one eats odd dad. We shoot him, we skin him, we take the head and hide and we leave the body for the, for the coyotes. And so we shot a big old odd dad. I took the meat and they're like, you're, you're nuts. We came home. I cooked dinner for all these Texans and there was not a clean plate left. They're like, well, what, what kind of meat was that? And I go, odd dad. They're like, no, it wasn't. But for me, I said, okay, what, what regions of the world are eating dirty, nasty, stinky goats and sheep? The Middle Middle East, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not saying that in a negative way to anyone, anyone that's, that's Middle Eastern, but you're going to raise that, that goat. And then when it's done serving its purpose, it's going to become dinner, right? I've been to India, I've been to Pakistan, I've been to, you know, Iraq, I've been to all these other places and the older, nastier sheep and goats are the ones that are getting eaten. They're not eating the young one that's still producing milk. They're not using eating the, the young one that's still, you know, giving birth to, to two or three kids. They're eating the old, nasty, you know. The ones that are past female, the prime attempt you know. point. Yeah, and so looking at their flavors and their cultures, understanding the dynamics of their plate is how I prepare this. So doing a red wine and red curry on one of them, making homemade non bread. So we're sitting there just eating it out of the, out of the cast iron then taking the other one and grinding it up and making, you know, like different Greek and middle Eastern style foods. And they're all excited. But I think where a lot of people get mistaken is they're like, Oh, I got to cook this like a, like a, like a cow or I got to cook it like a whitetail. Yeah. That does not, that, that odd dad is not going to taste like a whitetail (laughs) and some whitetails suck depending on what they're eating. You know, like I can't, you know, Elk, elk is phenomenal, but if you get a low valley elk that's eating nothing but sagebrush, it's going to suck unless you understand how to complement those flavors versus hinder those flavors. The mule deer that, that we shoot, they're eating nothing but cactus and sagebrush. They're very, very strong in flavor, but once you understand how to complement that flavor instead of trying to mask it, the problem is a lot of people try to mask it, right? It's like... I was give because someone told me, well, it's like, I, well, what can I do to hide that flavor? I said, have you ever taken a dump in a bathroom and sprayed rose potpourri spray? Like, yeah, I said, it still smells like flowery shit. <laughs> Pardon my French, but you still know someone went in there and took a dump, right? Now, how can you then take that meat and complement the smell and the taste versus trying to hide the, because fl- once you try to hide it, someone's like, oh, there's something, there's You're something about something. it, yep. Sort of like when your mom used to hide lima beans and stuff. You're like, Mom, I know there's lima beans in here. <laughs> now I love lima beans, but back then it was one of those deals. So I think once you understand that, then wild game really takes on a whole new level of fun. Yes. I had just had a conversation with Jesse Griffiths, uh, author of the, the Hog Book, and he explained it very, very well to me um, in that when he he does get a batch of of hogs either for his restaurant or, you know, just a group of hunters that he's helping, uh, helping out. There's a bit of uniqueness to every single, uh, animal that comes in, just as you described that elk that's 
eating sage in the bottomlands. Or just like that Audad that, you know what, it's going to have a funky flavor that's not going to taste like corn, not going to taste like soybean, that if someone is new to wild game, they are going to notice every aspect of that. And the challenge, the fun in that point, the excitement, the reason why we get up in the morning and we want to chase Moby Dick is because we're going for that uniqueness. We're going for the not easy part of, I want to make this animal, the one that I got, whatever its uniqueness, I want to compliment that because we're trying to elevate this animal, not whitetail as general, not wild hogs as general, not this audad as general that everybody's cast off, but look what I did with this particular animal. And I think right there is you hit the nail on the head that it's it's a challenge. It's the full circle, I think, of being an outdoorsman. As we chase these animals, as we pursue them, we then want to carry that same level of thought, that same level of care, that same level of motivation and drive into presenting it to our family and to our friends. If it is just for a whitetail burger, let's make that the best Dagon burger that we can. If it's going to be Audad, let's blow the socks off a bunch of Texans because they've never truly had what Audad is supposed to be like. So, yeah, I love how you put that all together. Yeah, and it's and it goes to, like, being going back to antelope. You know, everyone gives antelope such a bad rap. I think it's one of the top wild game meats that there is. It is beautiful. The texture, the flavor, the aroma, and... The difference is, is that it's you can't treat it like a whitetail. You can't sit there and throw it in the back of your truck and drive it to a processor without getting it cool. Like the moment, the moment an antelope dies, it starts to decay. I know, I know that everyone says that, but you, you got you got a while with a whitetail, like yep. before they start to before they start to get funky. Um, as soon as you shoot an antelope and you go to drag it, you'll be pulling clumps of hair out of its hide. You can pretty much skin pluck like you do a duck or a turkey an antelope with that much hair that you you can go all the way down to the hide just by grabbing hair like this you know really really gentle not even pulling a lot and so we're you know we we drive into town and you'll see a dude with a with a buck in the back of the truck ungutted 75 degree weather who's taking it to a processor but decided to stop at mcdonald's first and get a big mac on his way into the processor and you're like dude your antelope he's like ah antelope meat sucks anyway well, it sucks because of the way that you're treating it. You know, it sucks because of the way that you are allowing the meat to spoil, you know, and try to, instead of being a dick about it, trying to educate and really elevate this idea that, that by taking the time, you can make that meat so much better. You know, like understanding how to process a hog is going to flavor the hog completely different. You cannot get pee anywhere, you know, like, so for me, I go from the back to the front versus the front to the back. Um, because that way I can pull that hide down. I can get through those plates. And, you know, same thing with doing, like, javelina. Javelina's phenomenal meat. But you've got this stink sack on the back. If you puncture that or get that anywhere, so, again, coming and pulling that away and getting – there's so many ways that you can treat an animal to make it taste beautiful and to make it taste elegant and to make it taste spaghetti and meatballs for your family. Like, one of the things I'm putting in my book is – Treat meat as meat, right? And don't treat it as something that is less of, because I think a lot of times as hunters, we're like, oh, it's just deer meat, right? Or it's the opposite. We're like, 
well, we can't eat that. We got to have a big party and invite people over because I got to make a spread. Treat it as your everyday. Like for me, I can't eat domestic meats. And so for me, wild game is an everyday. I've got three freezers full of wild game. That's an everyday, you know, breakfast sausage to hot links to all the stuff that I'm processing myself because I have to know what goes in it. Because my allergies aren't just beef. It goes into a lot of oils and processed stuff. So mm-hmm. seasonings and oils and fats that come derivative of other, of other things I can't have. And so really taking this time to understand the animal has, I think, made me a better hunter, made me a better father, made me a better – because now I don't want to waste meat, right? I don't just want to sling, a, you know, a bullet through both shoulders. It's like, okay, well, where is the precise spot that I'm going to get the least amount of damage on that meat, even, even for an arrow? You're still cutting away damage from an arrow going in. It's not going to have the ballistic explosion that Absolutely. goes on, but you're still going to have you're still going to have die off from you're going to have blood meat. Yes, yeah, yeah from from sticking an animal. So it's where can we do to minimize the loss of meat? You know, and how much and how well can we get all that meat off the bone? People call me crazy to sit there and scrape the ribs and the the joints until there's no meat left and they're white bones. Well, I just made like 17 more meatballs for my spaghetti. Yep. That's how I look at it. They mock you for the time that you spend on taking the most out of the the hunt that you've already had. But at the same time, like, I feel it's it's almost in reverse. Like, how quickly are you to give up on the carcass that you have hanging? Where, you know, I've gotten pretty good at, at cleaning a bone. But there's some times where I do kind of like let myself go on a knuckle i'll cut a wide around the knuckle but that's not because i'm trying to be lazy at this point it's that's going to go right into the stock pot any long bone that i can go to get to the stock pot it's going to go to work it's going to go into that flavor enhancing i'm going to get the gelatin i'm going to get the fat that's in there we're going to get all those flavors to work in there but it's extra steps that i'm having to take that yes does take time yes does take effort but i feel like i shouldn't be I feel like it shouldn't be a mocking point because you want to go go to bed early because you're not going to sit here and scrape the rest of your deer. You'd rather pitch it off to to the side. You know, my I guess my grandparents were always on the waste not want not train. They grew up through the depression, and so I not to say that it's genetics, but at the same time, when I have an animal hanging there, I want to glean every little bit of it because I don't want to waste any of it. Yeah, I mean, we have that saying in my classes: it's just another meatball. And I'll tell people all that, like, why are we doing this? Because it's just another meatball. Like, and I tell people, like, if you don't want to take the time to, to get an extra two pounds, don't take the time. It's your animal. You do it. This is why I do it. You know, and, and in my classes, I say there's no right or wrong way to do anything. There are better ways and more effective ways to do things, but there's no right or wrong way. There's no right or wrong way how to skin a deer. There are better ways to skin a deer. My way is probably completely different than the way you do it, which is completely fine. I have found that this is what works best for me. And so for me to fill my freezer, this is the steps that I've found that work best for me. And there's people like, well, I just don't, I don't want to. I'm like, well, that again, that's you. Just another and, meatball. It's yeah, another meatball you're going to get. We had, I had one guy one time and he's like, oh, I just don't, I don't think there's enough in it. I don't think there's enough for the extra 45 minutes it's going to take me to really get through all this sinew and to get through I don't think the effort's there. I said, that's fine. Leave your whole pile of scraps. And he's like, okay. So he had a five-gallon bucket full of scraps, 
right? That he was like, ah, it's too much work, too much, just throwing it in the bucket. Well, that dude goes in, grabs a whiskey, sitting there watching a football game, and I sat there, and I turned on music, and I sat there, and I scraped, and I got through sinew, and I got through this, and it took me about a half an hour. I took that five-gallon bucket, which when I weighed it, because I decided, I'm just going to weigh this, it weighed 14 pounds of just junk that he had thrown in this five-gallon bucket. When I was done, it weighed a pound and a half. So I got... 12 and a half, 13 pounds of usable, delicious meat from what he said was scrap. So then I had the whole class come back in. I said, okay, here's what, let's just call him Bill, just in case he's listening on him, be like, that's me. Um, here's, <laughs> you here, know what, here's what, is you. <laughs> yeah, it is you, Bill. You know exactly who you is. Um, and I said, this is, this is the five-gallon bucket Bill gave me. We all weighed it. We all know that it weighed about 14.2 pounds. Here is the meat I got out of his bucket. Here is the little handful. And they're like, you really, you've only been in here half an hour. I said, right. This is what I'm trying to teach you. I'm trying to teach you that if you have the extra time, do it. You can take this into your kitchen, throw on your TV, talk to your wife, hang out with your kids as you're sitting there scraping this. It isn't sitting in your garage by yourself, lonely, like, you can also take all of that scrap that you had, vacuum seal it, and then guess what? You can take all that scrap and throw it into a crock pot or a pressure cooker, and all that meat is now going to fall apart and shred, and all that sinew is going to turn hard, rock, you know, rock hard. It's going to float to the top. You can scoop it all, and now you've got meat. But instead, we're so easy to just chuck it. Right? Ah, this, oh, this is too much work. It's too much work. And if we actually look at, Hunting in a general, let's look at TV shows, let's look at articles in magazines, let's look at whatever, right? The, the top TikToks or whatever. It's all about the instant gratification. It's all about fast food. It's all about what's popular now. It's all about the success of a, of a, of a grip and grin. It's all about the pursuit, right? Which is great, but people will take six weeks to prepare to go shoot one whitetail by patterning the deer, sitting in tree stands, cutting, cutting limbs away from their, from their shooting zones, planting crops, watering those crops, tending those crops, checking trail cameras, you know, doing all the things they need to do, tuning their bow, sighting their rifle, you know, tuning their shotgun, patterning their shotgun, and then they pull the trigger and they have no more time in the world to do anything else. <sighs> I don't have the time for that. Are you kidding me? You just gave up six weeks of your life to pattern that deer and you can't spend an extra half an hour to treat it the way it's supposed to be treated. I think that that's the only time that it really upsets me is the excuse of, I don't have time when truly, you know, that, but then they're sitting there drinking a whiskey, BSing, watching football. Like. Absolutely. I, I was just quick looking up. I, I've been on this kick. I, I read an article and I know uh, my listeners are, are going to be they're like, Oh, here we go again. Nick and his, uh, his proverb, but I got hit hard with uh, Proverbs twelve twenty seven. The lazy do not roast any game, but the diligent feed on the riches of the hunt. That's that's coming <laughs> right from uh, right from Proverbs, right from the Good Word. Yeah, and... that's a sticker on my gun case and on the side of the Wicked Witch of the West. Yes, when I get lazy, I look at that on the side of my gun and I go, "Don't be lazy. One more, I... one more step." You know, yes. like that deer might be over that rise. One more step. But even how like the sluggard, the lazy, 
is going to get up and do all the stuff because there's going to be some sort of recognition for it. The recognition for that person then stops once they've put the deer in the back of the truck. That's when their hunt is over. For individuals like you and I, the hunt isn't over until it is packaged, until it is put into the freezer, until the the dish has then been manifested and put before us. When I present the flesh of that animal to be consumed by people, that's when the hunt is over for me. You know, these hunts are sometimes half a year because the, the <laughs> I haven't made the sausage yet or I haven't made the the grind yet. But at the same time, when my kids enjoy the burger or I bring the sausage to camp and then share that with a bunch of people, it's like that is the culmination. That's the end of the hunt. That is when we can give praise to the hunt. But to come in and just be like, yeah, I want these antlers on the wall, it is one of those dead ends that I feel like, you know, if that if that's where the movie ends, you know what, I, I don't know if I'm going to give it a two thumbs up. I don't know if I'm going to get there because it's not fully manifested at that point. No, I and that's it's funny, too, because I think we're at that that turning point. Um, you see a lot of people when I first started this 10, 15 years ago who were making fun of me, mocking me, whatever, for saving certain parts of the animal or for eating this, or for doing this, or for, oh, why are you Frenching out? I remember when I first started Frenching out the back loins. You can trace it back. I was one of the first people to start Frenching out those those back loins, you know, to do the king's crown, to do the, the rack roast, to do this. Of, and it was an idea I had, We and I remember I posted it, and a lot of big-name people, like, called me, like, dude, you're such an idiot. You're wasting so much time. Just cut the back strap out. Why are you leaving the rib bones on? Like, you, that's such a waste of time. Now you cannot turn on social media without seeing somebody eating a Frenched out or a lollipop or you just can't, you know, or, or pictures of me holding a heart and cooking heart. And they're like, dude, you're eating heart. That's disgusting. And now these same people are like, oh, we made heart tacos tonight. And we made, and for me, that's where I get excited. I'm like, okay, so I may not be the best. I may not be the coolest. I, I know I'm not the most attractive or the most fit. But if I can if I can encourage one person to try something different and to give it a go, you know, like like plucking doves. You know how many people make fun of me for plucking dove? And now how many people are out there plucking their dove and their quail just to, for that so much more meat that you're missing out on? Or turkeys, that whole save the legs, you know. I've been an advocate of that my entire life. Absolutely. And got made fun of. And now you can't go anywhere without people. And, you know, it's all over. All these top, out, you know, influencers – we're like, oh, look, I made this, all right? And it's like they're sharing my recipes like crazy because it's like, oh, well, this is the guy I got it from. Turkey leg barbacoa, been doing it for years. Well, look, now you can make pizza out of it. You can make tamales. You can make – and all of a sudden they're like, oh, I've been throwing away how much meat. And I yep. think that's the best part about, like, what we do is we show people that there is – again, there's no right or wrong way, but there is a better way. There's more an effective way. There's a, there's a tastier way to do things. And once people get away from that fact, you know, uh, another thing you probably hear all the time too is like, well, my, my granddad did it this way. Mm-hmm. My dad did it this way. We evolve in all of our hunting gear from our optics to our weapons to our, to our clothing that our grandpas and dads wouldn't even have imagined that they could have. Why are we so stuck on the way that they cooked and the way that they cleaned their game? When we evolve in every other aspect of hunting and fishing, 
until it comes to the knife we use to skin. Well, this is the knife my grandpa used. Yeah, well, guess what? There's really cool knives that are way better and way sharper, and it's going to give a way better cut for not that expensive. Oh, well, my grandpa didn't eat organs because organs are, yeah, they're full of iron, vitamin E, vitamin Z. Oh, well, my, my grandpa said use Montreal steak seasoning. Well, your grandpa should have tried these three other ingredients to elevate. Like, And I think that's once we get past that fact that we can evolve with food, um, that hunting isn't just wrapped in bacon with jalapeno and cream cheese or thrown into a chili, um, then we can really start to look at that deer as a protein source rather than just a once-in-a-lifetime shot it, let's eat it, throw the head on the wall. Like, like my girls, the other day, I forgot what I made. My daughter's like, was that elk? <laughs> I go, I don't know what it was. I just grabbed a packet out of the freezer. Yeah. She goes, I think it was elk. My, and my other one's like, no, I think it was antelope. I was like, girls, I don't know. Go, go read the bag. It's written on there. I just literally was like, oh, roast. You know, I've got a whole shelf of roasts. And they go over there, and, they, and my, young, my old son's like, oh, I told you it was antelope. And it was like, my daughters are tasting the differences between these meat, and they're not even blinking an eye. You know, when I make sausage, or I make jerky, or I make you know, snack sticks, I live in Orange County, you know, 10 minutes from Disneyland. They say, I'm not living in the sticks. And my daughter takes it to her school full of rich blonde kids and starts passing out venison jerky, and all of them are now like, Dad, I want to go shoot a deer because taste this. To me, that's encouragement, and that's the next step of evolution in getting our kids excited to go out. And out of those kids, I've taken out a bunch of their parents. Like this dove season, three or four of their my daughter's friends have gotten their hunting license with their dads to come out and dove hunt. Now, these are families that during the pandemic were anti-guns, anti-what I was doing, mm-hmm. who are now saying, hey, I don't know any. I said, don't worry about shotguns. I got 33 of them. You get your license. You get a box of ammo. I got a field. I got a gun. Let's go have some fun. And it's it's really cool to see my daughters evolve in that area and get excited about it and want to take their friends out to do this in a society that I live in, which is very anti. Like, where I live is very anti what we do as as a culture, you know? Absolutely. And that's that's one thing that, yeah, shoot, I just keep coming back to talk to you on, and I just follow your, your social media and the things that you put out. I'm really excited about these cookbooks that that you've uh, alluded that you're putting together. And it's because of that idea that you're, you're facing truth head on to where a lot of people are saying like, this is not the way when, you know, I'm living in a society, I'm living in a, a community that embraces it and, and loves that aspect of it. But at the same time, even in my aspect where I'm saying we need to step up our game in in how we're treating this animal we need to step up our game just like you said from backstraps with jalapeno and cream cheese we need to make this an everyday thing that's a battle that that we're having to do but at the same time your battle's completely different over there where people are opposed to even the idea of shooting a critter you you're hurting this critter but at the same time once once they realize like you know the critters that we're eating from a farm, the, the the style of life that they are getting versus the style of life that they're getting in the wild, you're getting the best of what creation can even offer out in those fields. And so to be even have an impact on that, I feel, is just a, a testament to your passion and your drive in that. I can't imagine living in Southern California where 
both sides of my neighbors on every every corner are already upset the fact that I have a firearm. But the fact that you've been able to use that as a tool to say, no, no, I'm not a gun nut. This is the this is the avenue that I've chosen to take in order to get to the amazing food. I'm a food nut. And this is what I'm able to glean by using these tools. I feel like that's a true testament to your testimony as you've been able yeah. to go through what no, Field to Plate is all about. No, 100%. And I think that's that's the whole goal from the very beginning was to take the food from the field to the plate in, in a respectful way, um, in a way that I was grew up and taught. And, you know, I mean, even so much so, like we had some deck work done on our back deck, and the, the termite guy comes and he opens up the garage to look to where you can get over to the deck, and he sees, you know, the whole wall of Euro mounts by my gun bench and my bow set up and my podcast area. And he goes, do you shoot all those animals? I go, yeah, I shot them all. He's like, oh, okay. You know, his eyes kind of like, oh, this, this guy's weird. I go, hey, but try this. And I pull out from the, the refrigerator in the garage, go, try this real quick. He's like, what is this? I said, just try it. He takes a big bite. He's like, oh, this is phenomenal. What is this? I go, oh, it's a, I go, I call it my, uh, you know, my, my antelope cigars, but I make it with like a honey barbecue snack stick, but the size of a cigar, you know, I put it in actual, you know, hog casings. And he's like, I said, oh yeah, it's this animal right here. This is the one we ate. This is, the, and I start Next thing you know, his workers come. It was four Mexican dudes, and they, they come in. The guy's like, hey, um, uh, Hermias, oh, yeah, you you hunt uh, the deer? Yeah, I hunt the deer. Why, what's up? So um, we try some of those uh, sticks. Mm-hmm. His boss went to work and told him, hey, you're going to go to this. you got to ask this dude to try these sticks. I said, well, I'll do one better. When you guys are doing that, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll make tacos. They're like, you make those tacos? I was like, yeah, I'll make some tacos. So I pull out, you know, a couple pounds of white tail and, you know, get out my tortilla press. I make it. They're like, you're making tortillas? And I go, let's freaking do this, right? And we have dinner. This is, this is last week. And we're having lunch out on this new deck that they're building for us. And these guys are just laughing. They're asking stories. Okay, well, how did you, what kind of gun? And I think food is the great equalizer, Right. If we don't eat, we die. That's a proven fact. If you're a vegan, a vegetarian, a carnivore, whatever, you don't eat, you die. That goes down the smallest organism that's living on your skin that you can't see without a microscope to the biggest of the blue whales in, in, the, in the ocean. If we do not eat, we die. Everything needs to eat to survive, right? We choose to eat what we choose to eat. And, and for me, I can sit there and say, okay, let me introduce you to my story through a plate a food, through a fork and a knife. I'm not going to bring on a gun. I'm not going to tell you about this deer. I'm going to I'm gonna present it to a way that is comfortable, which is flavorful, which is going to have you then ask questions about the meat that you're eating, which is going to allow me to respectfully tell you about what I do, right? I have taken out ex-vegans on their first hunts who used to give me death threats. Proven fact, I will introduce you to seven of them. Because I came at their death threats with respect and honor and food, right? I, had the, I was talking to the Gun Owners of America guys on a turkey hunt, and they were arguing back and forth about the politics, about right, left, up, down, r- blue, green, red, you name it, right? And we were sitting there in the middle of the night, and I go, you know what? You know what you guys need to do? You guys need to have a meal with those that you guys hate. You know, you and I, Nick, are, are spiritual men. We're Christians. We have our Bibles. We read. We we understand the word of God. Amen. Everything Amen. Jesus did was around food. 
you brought people together. You talk about banqueting tables, right? That's the greatest thing. The least of you will be the greatest. And you look at all these different parables that are resolved around food. You read Proverbs, it's food. You read you read Song of Psalms, it's food. Even the lovemaking that he's doing is surrounded around food, right? Then you get to Jesus and he's doing He's doing all of his feeding the 5,000. He's doing parables about wine. He's doing parables about food. He's doing parables about money to buy food. Food is, is that. And so I said, if you guys can sit down with people that you disagree with and have a meal with it, I have never heard anybody upset while they're eating. Before the meal and after the meal, tempers are flaring. But if you have a really good meal, you know, you talk to a lot of us who are chefs, and we tell you the greatest moment in a chef's life is silence. Because if, if the room is quiet, that means mouths are full. If mouths are full, it means people are enjoying their food. If people are enjoying their food, then it's going to have an amazing conversation afterward about the food that they're eating. You know, I can ask you what your favorite bite of food is, and you'll probably oh, automatically know what this is. Or a smell comes over, you're like, oh, that smells like grandma's biscuits. And then this whole euphoria of that single bite of food floods your, your whole entire body. And so if we, as wild game chefs, all of us that are out there, if we can tell our hunting story through a picture, through a story, through a video, through a fork and a knife, I think we're going to expand, we're going to grow, we're going to explode this industry beyond, you know, Cameron Haynes, love the guy to death, but I guarantee you I'm going to win over a lot more people to hunting than he is by preparing them a beautiful meal than having them run up a mountain with a bow in their hands gasping for air. And it's it's just the way it is. Food is beautiful. I've gone to 27 different countries, and everywhere I go, the first thing they do is bring out food. Everywhere. Oh, try this. Oh, have. And as hunters, we should be doing the same thing. The first thing we do when we meet people, oh, my gosh, try this. Oh, I don't want to. Oh, just try it. You know, I have a saying, you've probably heard me say it before, if you don't like it, spit it out in my hand. Take a bite. I mean, I have said that to the biggest people in our industry. I remember I brought Bobcat Jerky to SHOT Show and was sitting there with a bunch of, with a bunch of the, the big-name people, and Will Primos comes over, and Toxie Hayes is like, dude, you got to try this beef, this jerky Jeremiah made. He's like, oh, what is it? And I said, it's Bobcat. He's like, I don't eat Bobcat. I don't eat Bobcat. And I'm like, well, just eat it. If you don't like it, you can spit it in my hand. So he takes a big old bite, and I put my hand up to his mouth, and he's chewing it, and he goes, give me another stick. And I go, you got it. And we started talking, right? Food is beautiful. And I'll say it till the day I die is I think food is what's going gonna, is, is gonna to change this world. It's going to make people want to sit down and talk. It's going to make people want to open their eyes to realize that fast food is killing us. That, that what we're putting into our body and our kid's body is ultimately affecting who we are as a human society and a race. And getting back to the pureness that is wild and the pureness that is not McDonald's and Taco Bell and having our kids grow up with real flavors versus artificial flavors, I think is, is the key to where we're going to go next. And it's the key to who you and I want to be. I know it was kind of a long rant, but food is just my passion. Like telling stories about hunting is great, but I can, I'd rather tell you about the meals, you know, and how they've changed people's perspectives over those, that bite of food. Absolutely. I have, I'm literally sitting here tingling. I'm speechless. Just the way that you presented that, that this, this is what it's all about. As we come forward, I, I just, I agree with every, every word that you 
presented there at that point. And I'm pretty sure that listeners right now, you have pulled over your vehicles. <laughs> You're literally sitting in your driveway, finishing out on that rant because that shouldn't be, that shouldn't be a soapbox that you just stood on Jeremiah. That should be a base marble that we look upon to say, Hey, this is one of the giants that is coming up in the industry that as we hear voices, as we hear messages, we're hearing people talk about food. We're hearing people talk about how we need to be more in tune with what we're putting into our bodies and what we're putting into our minds. And that's exactly what you are pointing to. That's a home run right there. That is truth boiling over. Thank you. Thank you. I don't know. I get passionate about food. I don't know if it shows, but uh, it's just, it's, it's one of those deals, man. It's, it's food is so just part of who we are. And I think we forget about that. You know, when you ask somebody where I was doing a, an article with, I know we're, we're past our time, but I was doing an article with, uh, with, with time magazine and we were talking about food. And one of the things I told them, I said, I don't think people actually understand where food comes from because they were talking about like, as hunters, you guys kill so many animals to eat. I was like, not really. Like I shot 11 deer last year, probably about a hundred dove, you know, handful of ducks and geese, handful of hogs, you know, a couple antelope. Like that's really not that in this grand scheme of it, maybe, you know, 150 animals total have died to feed my family for the entire year. And so I started getting thinking. So what I did is I went to my church for 30 days. I had three hunting families, three non-hunting families, all families of four to five. I said, what I want you guys to do for 30 days, I want you guys to keep track of every piece of meat you guys consume. You order a pizza, tell me we ordered pepperoni pizza, count how many pepperonis are on it. They're like, really? I said, just for 30 days. I, everything from your, your bologna and your lunch meat to whatever. And they're like, okay, great. And I said, and if you are the hunting family, say if you use wild game, I used wild game, this deer, blah, blah, blah. Blew people's minds when I came out with the results. Think about this. A family of four, they decide to have chicken breasts one night, right? Mom buys six chicken breasts because dad's going to eat two, and she wants to have one for I go, okay, well, how many chicken breasts does a chicken have? Two. You just killed three chickens for one dinner, okay? You've done that three nights in a row. So three, six, nine. You've now killed nine chickens that that month or just just in this week. Okay. You guys also then ordered out, you guys had hamburgers. Well, we can't really say how one cow at least had to die for those hamburgers. Let's just say one cow. We don't know how many cows went into it. One cow had to die for you to get hamburgers at McDonald's. One cow. You go home, you then go get five ribeye steaks at the grocery store. How many ribeyes does a cow have? Okay, so let's start breaking this down per cut, per animal, per. In one month, a hunting family who eats primarily wild game ate about 10 to 15 animals total, right? You, you're thinking about all that. Okay, well, yeah, my deer is going to get me. Okay, yeah, I think about, okay, okay, we subsidize. Maybe we had some chickens come in or maybe we had this. or That non-hunting family was killing like 300 animals a month based on the amount of meat that they're coming in. And just So a non-hunting family yeah. is killing 300 animals because, you know, well, they had, they had a, a, a pork loin. They had three racks of ribs. Three racks of ribs is two whole pigs have to die. 
well, yeah, but I need the other meat. Doesn't matter what, what you ate, what you ate off that animal. Mm-hmm. For you to get three baby back racks of rib, I know for a fact that there's only one side of a rib. There's another side of a rib. They don't have four sets of ribs on there. They have different sizes. You get your St. Louis, you have your, but, and these, these non-hunting families were like shock and awed that they had no idea. You know, I'm like, and also think about this. An average steak in a grocery store touches 50 to 100 things before it gets to your family's plate. That's factory trucks. That's farming trucks. That's feed gates. That's farmer's hands. That's factory workers' hands. That's machines to package cuts, you know, the truck when it goes from there to your local grocery store, the the pallet jack that it takes it into the the freezer, the freezer that it sits on, the think about all those things that meat went through. You and I can tell you exactly what happened to our deer. We shot it, we gutted it, we skinned it, we cut it, we threw it in our vacuum sealer, we threw it in the freezer. Like our hands are are it that it touched. You know, if we include all of our things, maybe five or six things also touched it compared to a hundred things touching it for your family to eat. Like talk about real food. Real food is getting real dirty for your, for your dinner, not going to the grocery store and just picking up, you know, 17 ribeyes for your party. You just killed what four. There's two ribeyes on each cow on each side. So four, four, eight, eight, 16, four cows died for that, that party. Crazy to think about. It's just intense stuff. It's just reality that when you're put, yeah, Put in front of it, we've got, not to say that we have the answer, but like you said, like it's, it's not the way things have always been done, but we can find a way that's, that's better. Jeremiah, where can, where can my listeners find more about you? Where can they join in the conversation with you? Not the foot finder one. Cause that not one's weird. <laughs> <laughs> that's how, how do you think I got to make money for this, this, uh, Rhodes <laughs> plastic make money? board that I have all the way back to this. Look at that circle back. Let's circle back. Um, that's really easy from field to plate on, on everything. So from field to plate.com from field to plate on Instagram, Facebook, I've got two group. I got a group and a page on Facebook. Uh, the group on Facebook, I think you're, you're maybe a part of it. It's geared just to food and stories. Uh, if it's not a food, and it's not a story. I delete it. I don't care. Um, I don't want grip and grins. If it's a grip and grin that goes along with a story, there's a plate at the end, share it. But if it's just look at this big deer I shot, I'll, I'll take it off because, and it's crazy. It's got in this since February when we started, it's got 15,000 members of the group and it is very active. There are food plates that go up there that I'm like, what, where did you even yeah. think of that? Um, I love questions too. I love the questions. Oh, yeah. And shoot, every time that I see a question pop up, like, hey, I'm I'm looking at burger, like, what should I mix in with burger? Should I mix anything with burger? What do you guys do? And I go to put my two cents in, but I already see there's like 50 comments. Which and is it's phenomenal. Like, you know what? It's, and, it's, it's, and it's all encouraging. Yeah. Yeah, and it's all encouraging, which I think is awesome. So you can go join that group if you want to. It's also a Facebook page um, from Field to Plate. And, yeah, and then... I'm on Twitter and stuff, but that's like that's like an ADD like group text. I I actually I hate it. Um, so go on there. I'm very active on all those platforms. So question, comment, concern, and then working on these cookbooks should be done beginning of beginning of the or the end of this year when hunting season starts. September is the goal. Um, one of it is geared towards it's a multi-species cookbook, um, kind of interactive, kind of tells you the basics of all of that. And then I'm, I've got one that's in the works. It's a, I can't really give too much because I haven't seen one like that out there, and I don't want someone stealing it yet. 
Gotcha. Uh, but it'll, it'll Blood in the water. Towards, I'm on it. Blood in the water. Be, I'm going to try and steal yeah. it. <laughs> it'll be geared towards uh, animal specifics. And it's one that I've been working on for about two years and it, pretty intensely. And it's to the point where it's now that I have everything compiled, it's just laying it all out and typing it all out, which is even this self-writing a book, you know, it is a pain in the butt. Um, so, but again, there's no, you know, roasting game for the lazy. So and then when that's up, I'm going to do a whole kind of crowdsourcing type aspect to it. So that way you can get in on the, on the ground floor and help self-publish this thing, and get it going. And, uh, through that, there'll be different levels where you can get some cool hunts and gear through sponsors and come out and hunt with me, uh, through that aspect of it. So it'll be fun. It'll be exciting, but I'm ready for a nap already. Just, just talking about it. (laughs) Well, Hey, don't take a break. You said the lazy needs to roast their game. You got, you can't fall in that category. Well, Hey, Jeremiah, hold on for just a second. I'm going to let listeners on home folks. We have been presented food for thought like you would have never imagined this is full-on truth coming to us face value if you're already listening to my podcast that you have a love and a passion for food and so i have a feeling that you were already pumping your fist you were already saying amen to the things that jeremiah was saying so folks as we continue on from this point when you get that animal we want to give it the utmost respect a, because the animal deserves that. But then B, we want to be able to present the best to our families. We're going to clean those bones. We're going to take those bones to the stockpile. We're not going to let anything go to waste just because we feel tired, just because we feel uh, like our time is being uh, taken from us at that point. Each of these has value. Just another meatball. It comes with so much weight because it is another meatball. So it doesn't matter if you're scraping off a rib from a a white-tailed deer or if you're going to uh, a wild hog and making sure that you're going from the inside out and not the outside in. Make sure the knife that you're using is always sharp. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.